returning from upstairs with a pizza uh, to the little store in the little miniature mall called the Village Mall. To the, it's a game store, like a, a hobby shop. Dungeons and Dragons, that's what they're playing. And some of them just went upstairs into the regular shopping mall to get a pizza. Because, you know, a lot of those pizza places were in those side corridors in the mall. You know those side corridors? There's like the main part of the shopping mall. And then there's like the side corridor that has like the exit going out to the parking lots. And sometimes, like a lot of times, pizzerias would be in those side corridors. Is it, what, is it rent cheaper? Or is it because of the smell, you know? Because it, it, usually people think of, you know, the smell of a pizzeria is rather pleasing. But, it, you know, it, it can be rather overwhelming. I do remember back in the early 80s, we used to go down to the Quaker Bridge Mall down, uh, you know, in the Princeton-Trenton area of New Jersey, something like that. And uh, they had uh, the side corridor not only had a pizzeria and a movie theater, but also the Spaceport Arcade, yes. And that whole section was just imbued with the, the smell of that pizzeria and the video games the movie theater that I don't know if we ever went to that movie theater but whenever you see a movie theater it's kind of like there's could we go see a movie is it, it we could go see possibly go see a movie right yeah yeah there's that sense of possibility and I think that really is one of the things that I used to love so much about shopping malls is the sense of possibility right that you can sort of encounter so many things especially back in the time when you wanted so many things and you couldn't really afford it so you would just go and look at the things and oh someday I'll, I'll be able to buy this or maybe I'll save up to buy this thing oh, there's a movie theater maybe you can go see a movie and the video games and the arcades and what games can you play and how many quarters do you have resource management all that stuff but yeah this is at the uh, I'm talking about the Bergen Mall which I think is now called Bergen Town Center was it spelled T-O-W-N-E-C-E-N-T-R-E, maybe? I don't know. They add that fancy old-style spelling for shopping areas for some reason. I think it's to give you a sense of reassuredness that it's a good place to shop. Kind of like the vitamin shop, S-H-O-P-P-E. Whatever happened to the vitamin shop? You know, I, 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 I used to go there a lot uh, to buy a bunch of stuff, and then I, I just stopped. I think it's because they changed their logo. They changed their logo to this just horrible, like, ugly-looking, like, letter V, white on a, on a dark blue background. Whereas it used to be more of a, you know, 80s-type logo. The Vitamin Shop. It's like... I think it still exists, but it's completely off my radar at this point. I guess I just buy my vitamins online. I do, I do still buy vitamins. I go through phases with vitamins. It's some, you know... I'll, there's ones that I like a lot now, like this Whole Foods blend vitamins. and I think, you know, I, I, I know you don't know if it's really helping you or not, but it seems to be a little bit crossing the train tracks here on foot. Yes, going into work in New York City. A relative rarity these days, but I am going to work. We're going to have a taco lunch. Even though it's a Thursday. We were trying to do Taco Tuesday, but uh, it has to be Taco Thursday at this point. It's a bit chilly out. It's, it's in the upper 50s Fahrenheit. So it's no longer the hot summer. It's uh, cooled down a bit. It's only going to get up to about 62 today.
in the Fahrenheit way. But yeah, the uh, I almost forgot because when I went on my trip to Europe, I took all the unnecessary stuff out of my wallet and my uh, my work ID and my bus tickets and stuff. I had sort of in the bottom of this little container in my one of my cabinets. I'm like, oh, thank goodness I remembered. I would have been in trouble had I not. I suppose I could have just paid cash for the tickets in and then bought some tickets at the bus terminal and then as far as getting in I'd have to go to the security booth oh I forgot my pass but I really do work here yada yada you know what I'm saying what the hell is this (laughs) what is that some weird little yellow construction vehicle in my path ahead what is that (laughs) it's weird is it like a is it a, maybe it is like is it just a lawnmower? I don't know. Wait, there's no one driving it. What is it? Remote control? Oh, there, there. Okay, there's a guy. He was he was obscured by a tree. He is he is moving it around, uh, using some sort of rod attached to the assembly. Let me cross the street. I, I certainly want to avoid this machinery situation on my path on the sidewalk. What the hell is that? <laughs> it's very... I don't know what is going on with this thing. It's a strange... Strange uh, thing. And now that now my path is blocked again by a ramp leading to a moving truck. Wow. This is not an easy path. I'm going to have to go out into the street to avoid all these blockages. This is a Rayco RG 1625 Super Junior. In terms of what it does, I don't know. Oh, oh, it's a... Okay, yes. <laughs> it's a tree stump grinder. Yes, that's what it is. Yes. It's like a little saw kind of thing. Yes. Now it makes perfect sense. Grinding tree stumps. All right, I think I've passed this blockage. Ooh, a Colorado license plate. Someone from Colorado is here in New Jersey. Anyway, so like this is mall. <laughs> it's Bergen, Ber- it used to be called Bergen Mall, and uh, it had this incredible lower section that was uh, had a, a church and a school and and uh, and this thing called the Village Mall, which was a miniature shopping mall in the basement of the shopping mall that was styled to be sort of like a little quaint little village of some sort. If that is long gone, what is this? <laughs> Halloween decorations, witches already. What is this? It's not... Well, it's late September. I guess we have a month till uh, the Halloween, so all the horror decorations are starting to come out. <laughs> I don't know. Can there be like a two-week guide guideline for these kind of holidays? Like, two weeks out, put up your Christmas, put up your... No, I know. It's months and months and months. Yeah, a lot of people are doing their Halloween decorations. Yeah, the themes of society. What is that, like owl lawn ornaments on the steps over there? Something like that. Sorry for being so vague. Yeah, anyway, uh, so yeah, it was, um, yeah, the Village Mall. I used to love just walking through there, and I saw these, these like, teenagers playing uh, Dungeons & Dragons, 
and uh, they just got their pizza and they got some like Mountain Dew and stuff and it sort of struck me it's sort of like an artificial world inside an artificial world inside an artificial world inside an artificial world right playing Dungeons and Dragons is sort of creating this fictional world that you're inhabiting and then inside a mini mall which itself is sort of an abstraction of an actual village the village mall it's an artificial world inside a larger shopping mall which is kind of an artificial abstracted uh, you know sort of a town main street with shops on either side right and then that mall is existing in the real world <laughs> this world real world so the, st- the thought struck me this morning that, you know, my, I've always been rather fond of artificial worlds, right? Be they the shopping mall, which, of course, many of them in here in New Jersey growing up. We basically went to, uh, I mean, Woodbridge Center, down in Woodbridge, New Jersey, was our main mall growing up. But only a few miles from there was Menlo Park Mall. And that also was a major mall for us growing up. And, uh... Only later did they open the Bridgewater Commons Mall, which was much closer to where I, where I grew up in Bridgewater, but that mall never really quite worked out. There's something wrong with the energy of that mall, the feng shui. I was even there just a few months ago. Something's not quite right with that mall. <laughs> They're never, it, it was never quite right. Something, it's on some sort of energy pattern. What the hell is that? Some sort of huge dead hornet on the ground. Oh, I saw uh, one of those uh, cicadas or locusts. What do they call those things? They're only supposed to come out every 17 years, but I guess every year there's some stragglers. So they climb up a tree and they sort of crawl out of their skin, leaving a perfect impression of the shape of their body. You know what I'm talking about? I used to see them all the time. It's like this uh, brown chitin how you pronounce chitinous material? It's kind of like a snake that sheds his skin, you know. I shed my skin when the party was about to begin. Light years away, but I'm walking back tonight of all nights when I should be feeling. What song is that? Duran Duran. Don't want to be in public. My head is full of chopstick. I don't like it. Cracks in the pavement. Looking for cracks in the pavement from Seven and the Ragged Tiger, damn it. What a great album. 83, maybe? 83? I think so. Alright, I'm at the bus stop. I'm trying to remember back before the pandemic. It's 2023 right now. Before the pandemic, when I used to take, go into work five days a week. It's a very different lifestyle. Well, you heard me doing that for many years here on the show. Indeed. I only have two bus tickets left, but that's enough. I'll get some more when I get in. No, no, no longer any need to buy the monthly pass because I, I don't go in that often. But it's New York City. It's a great place. I should go in more often. Something on my mind. Breaking open doors, I sealed up 
before. Is that a different song? The shadows are on your side. Yeah. Shadows are on your side. Soon as the lights go down. In the darkest place you can find. You belong to the hands of the night. Yes. Love that Duran Duran. So the theory I came up with this morning as I was trying to mention it was uh, that I've always loved, especially, primarily, one of the biggest influences on me growing up was uh, Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, which we went on family vacations to a number of times uh, through the 70s and 80s. And uh, especially Disney World in the 70s. And then the early 80s with Epcot Center. I absolutely adored it. There was nothing else like it anywhere. Uh, And I always thought about it when I wasn't there. I obsessed on it. It's really an artificial world. An amazing artificial world. We used to stay at the Contemporary Hotel. The monorail going through the building. Take it over to the Magic Kingdom and Main Street, USA. Talk about another artificial Main Street. Adventureland, Tomorrowland, Frontierland, Fantasyland. There's no New Orleans Square there in, uh, in, in Florida. They got rid of New Orleans Square. That's only in uh, Disneyland, I think, in Anaheim, California. But anyway. And then, of course, the, uh, the shopping malls, which themselves are do share a lot of DNA, so to speak, with uh, theme parks, like, like the Disney theme parks, as an artificial, abstracted world. And then all of the fantasy, love of science fiction and fantasy, the genres. What is behind all this? What is behind the extreme resonance, perhaps you could say, with artificial worlds? And perhaps you can see where I'm going with this, but the thought that came to me is that I've been, I've had such an affinity for artificial worlds uh, my whole life, I think because, perhaps subtly, I realize that this world I'm living in here is itself potentially an artificial world. And so, without even really perhaps knowing or acknowledging the potential potential that the world we're living in like this world i'm in right now that i'm experiencing i'm standing here at the bus stop it's september whatever 28th 2023 right this car is going by it's whatever you know like this world i'm in right now like it it, it's listen i don't know but if i had to guess and if i had to assign a value to it is this an actual real world whatever that means or is this an artificial world in that it was deliberately created by someone like if you go to Disney World, right? And you go into like it's a you know it's a small world. It's a small world after all. You're like, is that an artificial thing, or did it did it come about through an undirected process? Well, no. We kind of know that employees of the Walt Disney Company, known as Imagineers, designed it originally for the the New York World's Fair of uh, 64 and 65. Yeah. And I think it was for Pepsi or Coke or something originally. And then they built it in uh, the theme parks. So it, it's artificial. It was created by intelligent minds who had a vision for... They wanted to sort of abstract um, 
you know, how the world, with all our modern technologies, the world and all the cultures in the world are getting closer and more understandable and more embraceable. That it's an artificial world when you ride that ride. But this world I'm in right now uh, seems to be artificial in a lot of ways. And I would have to say that, as I don't know, but I, if I had to assign a value to it, like, is this world similar to a ride at Disney World? Was it created by an intelligent intent, intelligent creators? Or was it, did it come about through a completely undirected process, which is the popular notion in today's popular science? Popular science. I'd have to give, an, uh, I, I, if I had to assign a value, I would say, yeah, the idea that it came about through a direct, completely undirected process is very unlikely. It could happen. It could have happened. But I would say I would give it like a 0.001% chance of purely undirected, which is what our current science tells us, is that it was it, this all came about in an undirected fashion. Again, I'm acknowledging that, it, that that science, that popular science of today could be true, but I'm assigning it a very low potential. So... That, that shows that to my sensibilities... What is this? The Nissan... The Nissan Cube. Wow, I haven't seen one of those in a while. Kind of... There, there was a point in... Was it the, the late 90s, early 2000s, where they, they made very interesting-looking cars, and then they sort of went back to less interesting-looking cars. Anyway. Anyway. Um, the idea that, right, at some level, I think... I think everyone kind of questions the nature of this world we're living in. And yet we don't know that it's an artificial world. We don't know 100% that it's an artificial world. But maybe it is what provides us, or at least for me, with my sensibilities, such an affinity and such a resonance with a clearly, deliberately artificial worlds, like shopping malls and theme parks and science fiction, etc. Um, it's Because it... The main world that we're in, right, that we can't really say is artificial, it is almost perhaps a relief to be in a world that, that is completely artificial, right? That is 100% artificial, that we don't have to question it. Is this my bus? <laughs> oh, look, there's, uh, there's the guy I call the similar man, the bus stop. Is this our bus? I don't know. This, this doesn't look like our bus, but it may be our bus. But there's other people waiting to get it. It's not our bus. Okay. Anyway. But you see what I'm saying? And that example of that triple or quadruple layer of nested artificial worlds with the Dungeons and Dragons and the Village Mall and the, and the Bergen Mall in this world of ours, which is, is, our, is, is the world itself kind of a mall, a shopping mall? In a way, perhaps it is. But what is it? What is the essential? If it is a constructed world, obviously someone out there knows that it's fake or it's constructed. But they're not, why are why are they not telling us? Like how do, how is it when I go to a shopping mall? I'm like, is this just a, a regular village or a town that? somehow developed with a roof over it or no it was developed by a develop a real estate developer to be an indoor shopping center that mimics the a, a downtown or a main street or a high street right 
no one's pretending otherwise, you know. But what if you were in a shopping mall and someone's like, this all came about in an undirected fashion. Uh, it just sort of happened. It just happened. Which is what they say about this world. It just happened. That's like not a good explanation. How did it happen? It just happened. Why is the sky blue? It's just blue. What do you want me to tell you? <laughs> you know? Where are all the dead birds? I don't know. Predators eat them when as soon as they die. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a good answer to say, oh, it just, it just happened. And I know they have a whole theory about a Big Bang, which, of course, now the big, they're dialing back the Big Bang a bit because uh, all of the super telescopes they've been launching into, into orbit, supposedly, uh, are showing... Uh, galaxies so distant that contradict the Big Bang Theory, which so many people took as fact. Uh, you know, and now, scientifically, it's being kind of, well, you know, this may not be the right idea because, yeah, new evidence, new scientific evidence. That's what science is supposed to be. What the hell is this? There's, it's just like a standoff here. People are like, oh, okay, someone had to pull into this driveway, but someone else was in the driveway blocking the entire lane of traffic. You see what I'm saying, right? I think you see what I'm saying. I hope you see what I'm saying. Someone knows. Someone out there knows the truth of this world. But somehow us being... uh, Us having the impression that it's not artificial is a central quality of this place, right? It is almost amazing that everyone can sort of agree on this idea. It is actually remarkable. And it creates a world that's quite distinct from one in which, let's say, the knowledge of its artificiality is open. Right? Imagine that version of September 28th, 2023 in New Jersey where it's openly acknowledged that this world is artificial and created by some other minds compared to this one that we're in now where most people plausibly believe that it all came about in an undirected fashion um, this is really quite remarkable and amazing that you could have a world like this and it is different it is very different it gives us a different perspective on ourselves and on history and on the extent of things, and the very big and the very small, it gives us a different perspective, a unique perspective. So I'm not complaining about it. I'm not saying it's... Because I do like a lot of the aspects of this world quite a lot. And in the ultimate sense, if we as higher beings, consciousnesses, observers, have a choice of what to observe, and I'm observing this world, there must be something good about it. Um, but it's all based is it all based on a deception but is it a deception if I have all for a long time felt suspected that it is an artificial world you know there does seem to be a lot of uh, indications out there and of course all the world's religions and mythologies and legends etc all talk about God or gods creating the world, right? In which case, it is an artificial world, you know. But 
there's been an establishment set up and a scientific establishment and a cultural aspect which um, would tend to discredit those religious ideas in favor of a scientific idea. But it's almost like having the societal cultural tools to plausibly believe that it all came about in an undirected fashion is itself, as I said, uh, perhaps very rare and very rare, assuming that there's many other worlds and that most of those other worlds, the inhabitants, know the nature of the world they're living in. As when we go to Disney World, we know it's a place that was built by the Walt Disney Company and not a place that just came about in an undirected fashion. Just emerged, it just happened. So I'm not, again, I'm not against it. I'm not trying to rally people. Come on, folks. It's, like, I, I think the fact that most people can accept it being undirected at some level is remarkable, amazing, and unique. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why I'm observing this place and why you're observing this place. Because it's so uniquely fucked up. <laughs> you know? What else is fucked up? Where is this bus? What the hell? Uh, see, I'm glad, I, I'm glad I'm wearing this, uh, this fleece because, uh, see, I don't know what's going on with this bus. Because, you know, when, when you're in the house and running around getting ready, you feel very hot. But then it, when you're outside for a little while, you can cool off very quickly. What is this? Manella's Poultry Company? And it's like a super chicken character? Oh, here's the bus. Yes. All right. Here we are. Port Authority Bus Terminal. And look, the 42nd Street Ballroom. Kinetic sculpture is still here. Is it working though? I don't think it's not working. This is the sort of Rube Goldberg contraption that has all these billiard balls inside of it. But uh, it looks like it's uh, not functioning at the moment. Though they do, every couple years, they do seem to try to fix it. Yeah, on the way in, uh, I saw this gas station had reopened um, there in Lyndhurst. I think it, it used to be a Sunoco a long time ago. And then someone must have uh, bought it and turned it into an independent gas station, and they took the letters from Sunoco, and they rearranged them to spell New Soon, like N-U-S-O-O-N, New Soon. I know, I know there's... Something about that, uh, yeah, there's two ends in that, so it, like, it wasn't just one instance of the lettering for Sunoco. There's two ends, new, soon. And it was like that for a long time, and then it shut down, and it was closed down for years and years and years, but now it's back as a Sunoco. Somehow it's gone full circle from Sunoco to new, soon, back to Sunoco, so... It was open. It, it looked like it was closed because the, the main part of this, the, the structure was uh, um, looked very abandoned. But I saw there were, the pumps were there and there was a guy sitting in there. Because, of course, in the little hut, you know, little, the little structure to pump the gas. Sorry. <laughs> Things are very distracting here on the street by uh, 42nd and 8th. Um yeah, because in New Jersey, you're still not allowed to pump your own gas, which is the only, possibly one of the only places in the world where you're not allowed to pump your own gas. 
So that's interesting to see. Sunoco is back. Yeah, here we are, 42nd Street. Between 7th and 8th. Weird. It's weird. It's weird that I come back so rarely now. I should. I should try to come in once a week. Maybe I'll try to start doing that. I should. I should do that. Any new stuff here? Still the two movie theaters: the Regal on one side and the AMC on the other. The tar There's a Target here now. I heard they had to shut down a Target up in Harlem which is a, a northern section of Manhattan because of the, the rampant crime. You know, the rampant shoplifting, which... Uh, yeah, eventually, if there's really no way for them to combat it, like the police can't really catch all the shoplifters, and at some point you just have to close the store if everyone's stealing everything out of your store, you know. That's what happens. Honking horns, very New York City sound. Not sure what they're trying to accomplish, honking the horn. Obviously, the traffic is always horrible on the streets of New York City here. Honking the horn's not going to necessarily help, but it's like everyone ahead of you in the traffic jam. Oh my god! If only we had realized that guy honked and realized we should just start moving. So let's all start moving. Uh, we didn't realize we should keep, we should start going. Yeah. Madame Tussauds Wax Museum is still here. Though of course the Ripley's Believe It or Not is shut down for a couple years now. And here's a wax figure of The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. It's a pretty good wax figure. Some are better than others. There's Jimmy Fallon. Wax figurine. I've been in there a couple times. Like literally, I think two times I've been in there. Pretty sure I've been in there twice. One for a company Christmas party and the other time... I don't remember. I think there was another time when I went in there. Of course, this iconic McDonald's that used to be here is now shut down. Nothing has replaced it yet, as of yet. Frozen Fanta? What? Some sort of ad for frozen blue raspberry Fanta? Jackhammers? More stereotypical noises from the city. Here's that Japanese store, Miniso, where they sell little Japanese figurines. Miniso, what is this? We Bear Bears. It's a, it's a little nightlight. Hmm. What is this? It's a nightlight in the shape of an old TV set with these cartoon polar bears and panda bears inside. Oh, Cartoon Network, We Bear Bears, B-A-R-E-B-E-A-R-S. Very random products there. Right, let's go over here. Hey, Times Square, look at this. 
Always the same, always different. That's not a jackhammer, I don't think. It's something, though. Look at that building. It's like all stripped bare. One Times Square. Wasn't it just a Walgreens a couple, year, a couple of years ago? A couple of months ago? Now it's all gone. Remember when it was a drug enforcement museum? The JCPenney pop-up? All sorts of things. Well, I hope the Amazon ghost store is still open. It was the last time I was here, which was a little while ago. A few weeks ago, a month ago. It was like before my trip. It was the last time I was here, I think. You know, the Amazon Go store. I think they're sort of moving away from that concept now where you just where you just walk in and it scans you and you pick things up and it charges you automatically. I love that store. I like to get sushi for breakfast. Maybe it'll still be there. Hopefully it will. Knickerbocker Hotel. What is this? Coming soon. Chicken Guy. A new chicken restaurant. The Chicken Guy. Oh, is it Guy Fieri, the, the celebrity chef? He has a chicken store going on. <laughs> Excuse me. Thank you. Thank you for saying Gesundheit or bless you. Chicken Guy. And again, a cartoon chicken that seems so happy. But other chickens are being slaughtered for the purpose of the restaurant. Why is the cartoon chicken so evil? There's a lot of cartoon chickens like that. Promoting the slaughter of their kind. Someone's uh, having a heated conversation on the telephone. We'll hear it as we walk by here. Sounds rather serious. I don't know what's going on. The snack box group. This random stuff. Bank of America Tower. They even have a Bank of America branch right in, in the same building. Makes sense. Sirens, of course. Wait a minute, there's a store here. They sell watches and it's been there for a while. Hasn't it been has it been there for a while? I thought it was called Tourneau, but it's called Butcherer now. <laughs> Butcherer 1888 or, or Boucheret B-U-C-H-E-R-E-R Boucheret or Butcherer 1888 Wasn't it called Tourneau before? Maybe Butcherer bought Tourneau There in Salesforce Tower Oh, the Steinway Piano Store is over there, yeah Yeah, what the heck's going on? It's artificial world. Hey, it's later on now. Heading out. 
We had a good uh, taco lunch. Place called uh, Vida Verde. Like with Green Life, Vida Verde, maybe. Up on 55th Street. And uh, yeah, we walked actually through Times Square uh, to get up there. About a 20 minute walk. It's raining now. I do have an umbrella somewhere in my backpack. I gotta find it. Um, yeah, on the way there, I figured we should go to the uh, the sardine store. Hmm. Uh, which is called uh, the Fantastic World of the Portuguese Sardine. And it was kind of a cool place. Obviously, I'm not going to buy any sardines. I did ask them, though. They said, they said they do have some vegan sardines in the works. But they're not available yet. I mean, maybe some things don't need to be veganized, but... I wouldn't mind having some vegan sardines. I know they do ha some companies do make them, but it's made out of celery or something. Just want to like jam a bunch of celery in a tin, and that's that. That's like a sardine. I don't know. Does it taste fishy? I don't know. But um, yeah, so uh, so a bunch of interesting stuff. We saw that uh, there's a uh, there's a, a new like flagship Krispy Kreme uh, donuts in Times Square, right across from the, the sardine place. And uh, really, you know, like a flagship location with all sorts of, like a gift shop and restrooms and all sorts of stuff. And I don't know if they're making the donuts there, but there's some sort of donut machine-looking thing in there. So I, I decided to look up when I got back, you know, do they have vegan donuts now? And I'm like, oh, my God, yes, they have vegan donuts now. Look at this. On the website, the Krispy Kreme website, it's like vegan donuts now available. I'm like, wow. It's great. But then I realized I was on the UK site. It was the British site. They have vegan Krispy Kreme donuts in Britain, but not here in the US. No vegan, no. What the heck is going on? They can't throw like one freaking vegan donut in there? Come on. What the hell? If they could do it in England, why can't they do it here? I don't know. But uh, there was also this, this place on, I don't know, 54th or 50, no, no, 44th or 45th Street uh, called um, Rise New York. I guess it's like a ride, maybe where you sit in these seats and they fly around on hydraulics and you watch a movie or something like that. But then there's a, a, a reproduction of the, the Statue of Liberty torch. And there was a woman that kind of dressed up as a, like, like Marilyn Monroe, like singing some sort of song. Some sort of Broadway show tune standing up there. And then across from there is a place called the Museum of Broadway. I've never seen any of this stuff before. It's all, it's all new to me. All sorts of fun stuff opening up in uh, the Times Square area. Yeah, man. Look at this. Look at this rain. It's really coming down. Better find my umbrella. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Hey, hey, hey. Cut off the bus. Back in New Jersey here. And it's raining again. It stopped raining and now it's raining again. Luckily, I have the umbrella. It's that little tiny umbrella. But does the job. Hear the rain? Rainy night. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, yeah, the bus. It's just weird. Like, I don't know what it is. It's like, uh, 
you know, it's a rainy night, it's dark out, it's nighttime, but like looking out the window of the bus, like at various times during the trip, uh, everything just like looked weirdly unfamiliar. And I thought a few times the bus was like off course, but I don't know, it just was, everything was normal, but it just looked different. (laughs) I don't know what to say. pretty wild yeah it's like a weird a weird energy just feels kind of I don't know everything feels like kind of a drag and kind of depressing I guess it's because I haven't really been in New York for a while but anyway last night uh, did the exit ramp of course the exit ramp is a uh, monthly show that we do on on Zoom. It's like a video call, and it's released in audio. And I started it during the pandemic. I've been meaning before the pandemic, before 2020, I'd been meaning to do something like that, but never really. We tried a few tests here and there, but of course, uh, Zoom and uh, video conference calls were sort of the zeitgeist of the 2020 pandemic. And I uh, started doing it, and. Uh, I, I I did not necessarily expect that it would be continuing to go in 2023, but it's still going. And, uh, you know, I used to do it more on Sundays, but I don't know, lately, just every Sunday, I've been, like, busy with something, so. Did it Wednesday night, last night. And uh, <laughs> this was a great one. It was amazing. Uh, we had uh, some folks that we had not seen on the exit ramp before. Carrie Michelle, of course, from the Carrie Michelle show from the earlier days of the Overnight Keep Underground here. She uh, arrived and she uh, was in on the exit ramp and it was so great to see her after such a long time. She really was a, a, a big uh, onsug personality back in the day. And uh, so great to see sometimes, sometimes the hosts come back. And a host that's been with us since 2009, at least, the Meanderer, a very mysterious figure. He also came on the exit ramp for the first time ever. Uh, Brendan from the Meanderer. And we saw him on video and talked to him live. I mean, I've been, you know, communicating with him uh, mostly via email, you know, for like, what, uh, at least 14 years now or more. It's the first time I actually... Uh, saw him live on video or talked to him live. It was great. Also, we had Ruben from Australia early on in the show because it was a, it was last night for us and it was uh, the next morning for him in Australia. So he came on for a little while. We had Bob Lament. We had so many people. It was a, an amazing, amazing episode. Yeah. So check that out. The exit ramp on number 49, Ashtray Creek. Yes, that was the name of it, Ashtray Creek. Creek EA, not EE. So there you go. Wow. Really, uh, it's, it's sort of a time of renewal and, and things coming back. It's, uh, it's really quite, quite uh, heartening. Is that heartening? Is that the word? Heartening? Can I cross the street here? Yeah. It's really quite en- enlightening and heartening. What's the word I'm looking for? Emboldening. <laughs> no. Encouraging, let's just say that. It's very encouraging. Yeah. 
Yeah, then day after tomorrow, I'm going down to the video game connections grand opening. That store's coming back after 21 years. Things are coming back. Why the car is so much louder when it's raining? I guess just the wetness of the road surface against the tires. All those micro interactions of water particles and rubber particles of some sort. Whatever happened to like hovercrafts? That would that would be a lot quieter, right? But then they probably have very loud fans. Until they can figure out anti-gravity, like in Star Wars or whatever. Well, like the flying saucers, they, they use a different technology to go. Probably very silent. Going on. Yeah, I feel very drained today for some reason. Anyway, check out that exit ramp. I think you'll enjoy it. Now, oh, good morning. It's the next day now. I was, uh, I, I figured, yesterday I figured out this uh, thing that was bugging me. Um, you may have heard I did an episode called Onsug Radio Frank's Airshift Test. This is sort of a concept a show, a test show. You know, for what a top-level broadcast playing clips from the Overnight Escape Underground would sound like. And uh, so I played some random clips, and one of them was from Video Kids 85, the filming of uh, Polarized Worlds, our Doctor Who fan film in the summer of 1985. And uh, I played this section with my brother and, and, and our friend Chris. They were going to make a conceptual video, and uh, this, is, this is what it was. Yeah. Umbrella. Yeah, I can't think of a good conceptual video. Okay, this, let's do, let's do Laurie Anderson's song. W. 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 You know, jump So that quote right there, my brother, you know, was saying, let's do like a Laurie Anderson video. W. 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 And I'm like, yeah, there was a Laurie Anderson song that had that lyric, W. W. So I'm like, I couldn't remember what song it was. So I started looking for Laurie Anderson lyrics, W, like how do you even spell that? The letter W, that doesn't do much good for searching, or double U, you know, D-O-U-B-L-E, space Y-O-U. And I could find nothing. And even the part that goes dub, 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 W. I put dub, 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 nothing, got nothing, no hits whatsoever. So I started listening to Laurie Anderson stuff. And if you don't know Laurie Anderson, she was a, Really uh, incredible uh, sort of performance artist, and um, I first discovered her. And this was this since this is the summer of '85. I was trying to figure out what song could my brother have heard because I got into Laurie Anderson. I do believe when I was watching a TV show called Alive from Off Center on PBS Public Broadcasting, and they showed a video for the song uh, "Sharky's Day" uh, from the uh, Mr. Heartbreak album, I believe from '84. and it was very something that I just absolutely loved. I wound up getting uh, the albums. And then I also discovered Laurie Anderson's uh, United States 1, th- one through 4. I got this, the cassette box set of four cassettes of this like four-and-a-half-hour performance art piece that she performed 
at least uh, in the, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York. I would love to have seen that visually, but all you have is the audio. Uh, it was enormously influential on me. So I started checking out all different stuff. I couldn't find this W thing until I found the most obvious thing, which was that first video I found. A Sharky's, Sharky's Day, which is really an incredible song looking back on it. And the thing is, Laurie Anderson, after a certain point in the 80s, I don't know what happened to her. She kept putting stuff out, but it just it just wasn't for me anymore. She had this really vital period with the first album, Big Science, and then, of course, the United States. Before that, Big Science was kind of a distillation into a single album of all the songs and concepts from the United States. Then you had Mr. Heartbreak, and then... At the home of the Brave movie that I saw in the, mov- in the movies in, in New York City around 86-ish. And everything she did was just fantastic. And then after that, I kind of, uh, I don't know what happened to her. She kind of like fell off the radar. It, it, she was so good and then she wasn't good anymore. I don't know. I don't know if it was that or any, I don't know. But anyway, here is the part of the song where they go, W, W, right? Hold on, hold on, hold on. No, let's let's go back a little further. Yeah, that's it. That's the, that's the whole part, you know. And it's not included in any lyrics. W, W. Why not? That's a lyric. And then there's also a performance of it on uh, Home of the Brave, the movie, but it's not on the Home of the Brave soundtrack for some reason, which is, by the way, a really great album. Uh, but someone... The tech kit. Those who <laughs> what? The tech kit? Get out of here with this tech this kit. All right, enough. But there's a guy like singing W W. <laughs> Hold on, let me see if I can find it. She was so awesome back then. What happened to her? You're doing the W dance. There's the guy saying W, W. But yeah, definitely definitely check out the early Laurie Anderson stuff. I, I, I still get like an amazing feeling when I hear... Um, I think I used to listen to Big Science, the fir- first actual album, not counting the United States, um, on, a cas- on a cassette tape on a Walkman. And I get this... When I, fir- when I hear the song Big Science... It gives me this really unique feeling of walking around a museum or something. I can't remember where I was, but I remember the feeling of it. This is Big Science, the song on the album Big Science. It's cold outside. I get this feeling of walking around a museum in the mid-80s. It's cold outside. It's cold Here's uh, Laurie Anderson on uh, David Letterman, May 8th, 1984. 
she performs a song, Walk the Dog, but then, like, Letterman doesn't really get it. Like, her, this is a good song, Walk the Dog. I don't know if I was watching this live at that point, but I, I just, around around this time, we were such big fans of Letterman, but we had to go to school the next day, and this show was on from like 1230 to what, 1, 1230 to 1.30 a.m., so we would tape it on our Betamax and watch it the next day when we got home from school. I don't know if we saw this episode. Back, Larry Anderson is here. Uh, now, that was a really interesting performance. And, uh, and, uh, interesting. And it was interesting. Now I'm going to ask you a question you probably hear a lot, and, and I'm only asking you because uh, I just, I guess, I don't know about things like this. But how would you describe uh, what you did there? What was that? You said performance art, but it wasn't. It wasn't really a song, was it? It was a country and western song. Yeah. That was a country western song. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, 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 uh, what, what, what does that mean to you? That about uh, nobody going to be there to walk the dog exactly to walk her dog to walk dolly's dog uh well it's 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 a, one of the uh yeah, she mentions dolly parton in the song yeah anyway <sighs> that was 84 letterman laurie anderson oh my god oh look another video just came up here on my feed men at work dr heckle and mr jive johnson you're fired why? It's not you. This is not Men at Work. What the hell is this? This is some stupid commercial. Yeah, this is this is kind of a lost song. Doctor Heckle and Mister Jive, Men at Work. I think it's from their second album. <clears throat> There's uh, Colin Hay as uh, Sherlock Holmes. But things are not as they seem. Dr. Heckler wishes nothing more desperately than fulfill Very sad that this band fell apart. They were really good men at work. Yes. <laughs> oh, wait. What, what was the other video I just saw? It's showing me videos on the side. Dope Lemon. Oh, yeah. I saw this before. Dope Lemon Honey Bones. See, when I first saw this video, there's this uh, attractive, like, hippie girl. I thought she was the singer, but I think she's just a model appearing in the video. Just some dude. It's some dude who has a band. That's, it's just him, but he has a name for the band. You know how they do that? But he has these two hippie chicks in the video. Dope Lemon. Honeybones is the name of the song. See all the stuff they they give you all these videos. I watched that video like once, like a couple months ago. Now they're showing, giving it back to me again. You know what I'm saying? David Letterman, Dope Lemon. Just writing some show notes here. Like I was hoping these these women were like the members of the band, but they're not. Are they holding up the? Is, is that the guy? No, there's more hippie chicks, okay. Ooh, he's performing at uh, Brooklyn Steel in November 4th. I'm going to Brooklyn Steel to see The Hives, actually, in October. That's where I saw a stereo lab. All right, enough of this stuff. 
enough, enough of this fringe music situation, please. But it's a few seconds later now. Uh, yeah, there, there. I found a new band that I want to check out, the Field Mice. Never heard of them before, the Field Mice, and um, they were around from eighty-seven to ninety-one. And they're an English an English indie pop band from the independent record label Sour Records. And um, uh, we were listening last night to a, a playlist on Apple Music of I Miss 90s Indie. And this song came up uh, called something called Coach Station Reunion. And this song came on and I'm like, I didn't know it, but I'm like, this is a good song. I started hearing it and I'm like, yeah, this is my kind of music. It, Apparently, they broke up in 91 after a tour for this, their final album, For Keeps. See, the touring always seems to tear these bands apart. I know that's what happened to Men at Work. Right, I love this sound. Dig it, I dig it. 91, what a, what a, great, uh, what a great time. What do they say? Over a five-year career, the band, the Field Mice, were often dog, dogged, 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 with the reputation of having a post-C86 indie pop or generic sour record sound. C86 was this particular cassette tape that was released, uh, I believe, by the NME, New Music Express, that showed a new direction for music, indie pop in the 80s, I believe, 86, 1986 despite producing tracks with numerous styles and influences. Um, so the band split up in 91 after a fractious tour to promote the Four Keeps album, during which lead singer-guitarist Robert Rotten... <laughs> it's not like Johnny Rotten. It's W-R-A-T-T-E-N. Robert Ratten, Ratten, Rotten announced that he was leaving. I'm leaving, damn it. I can't sing for this band anymore. You're a bunch of jerks. I don't know if that's what he said, but he could have said that. The field, maybe if they didn't break up, then they would. The next album after that would have been a huge success, and then Robert Rotten would have been like super famous instead of, you know, quitting the band and whatever he did afterwards. He went on to form a band called Trembling Blue Stars in 1995. Oh well, never heard of them either. Yeesh. But anyway, I, I dig this sound, though. I mean, it's a good song. Right? But then they have this uh, Fountain Island, uh, a, a compilation of Sarah Records artists. So they're saying they all sound the same. So let me see. Tramway, The Orchids. What about Tramway? How does that, how does that sound? Star by Tramway. I've never heard of Sour Records. See, this is all the musical rabbit holes you can go down. Oh, wait, it starts off with the Tramway song. That must be the better one. Maritime City. That's a cool song name, Maritime City. So we're discovering new music here. Late 80s, early 90s. What a time. I like it. I never heard this before, but I like it. Good to me. Kitty. 
it's a bit later on now. And um, so yeah, finalizing uh, the plans for the Boston trip. Uh, originally, I was going to go up with Manny the Mailman and meet Rule from the Nether Rule from the Netherlands up in Boston, but Manny had to drop out because he couldn't get the time off of work. Uh, you know, because we're we were kind of we're trying to do it on uh, Columbus Day and or Indigenous Peoples Day, as they call it, uh, October 9th, the Monday. And um, <clears throat> Manny had a wedding on the day before, and he was going to take the day off of work the day after, but then he couldn't get the day off. So it's just too much. It's like a four-plus-hour drive or train ride up there. So it's just going to be me and um, Rule. We'll see if anyone else wants to come along. Uh, I don't know. But we may go visit uh, my brother's friend Mark, uh, who lives up in uh, Jamaica Plain up there, which is a section of Boston. And uh, you know him from uh, Combat Zone, the uh, recordings my brother makes with him. He's quite a character, this guy Mark. I hope he'll be around. We can stop by and see him. Um, I'm going to take the train up now. If it was just if it was me and Manny, I think we would have driven because it's just... You know, more convenient for a couple people. But I think for me, I'm going to take the train. I already booked the train. It wasn't too terribly bad. It was 160 something for the round trip, which is not terrible. I suppose I got a hotel in Boston, the Yotel, and it's all set up. So that's coming up. Uh, not uh, it's Friday now, so uh, not this Sunday, but next Sunday I'm leaving, and I'm leaving so that I'll have some time on Sunday to wander around Boston also. That should be cool. But anyway, uh, talking about that show, Combat Zone, you know, it started off with a different title, and uh, due to some misunderstandings, it had to be renamed. But all of the recordings have been preserved in the under the name Combat Zone. And uh, as I recently was going through all the show art here on the Overnight Escape Underground, I found the first uh, logo I made, the first show art I made for Combat Zone, which was really quite uh, remarkable. Um, it, it used the font Liberty, and it was at an angle. It had this uh, light red color and a gold color on a purple background. and I was quite struck by it, so I'm like, okay, let me set this aside. I want to do something with this. Um, so then, uh, the other day, I came up with uh, today's show title, Cool Beans Outcast. Yes, Cool Beans Outcast. And uh, I just... The, the idea behind that is, I don't know where the, these phrases people say, like, oh, cool beans. Like, there's certain people that that's their catchphrase. When, instead of saying, oh, cool, they'll be like, cool beans. Like, I've, I've never been a cool beans saying person, but I thought it was an interesting phrase. I don't know if people say it anymore, but I, I do remember some people in the past saying cool beans. Um, someone was telling me something about someone had a similar catchphrase. Anyway, so I was sort of was thinking about cool beans, and I wanted to add another word to it. And somehow, some way, I came up with the word outcast, the cool beans outcast. So the phrase cool beans outcast. It just something about that phrase just, I really liked it, a cool beans outcast, you know. Um, cool beans, maybe someone that's always trying to be more positive about things, but he's but is being outcast because the world is so negative. I don't know. I just like the way it sounded. So when it came time to make the show art, as you see, I love this show art that I came up with. Um, I was thinking for some reason uh, a tractor trailer, a big rig. Um, that just sort of came to mind as might be a good image related to a Cool Beans Outcast. It was just purely a, a, a 
a vision. There was really no logic behind it. So I started looking at, I, I knew there are some trucker magazines online, and there's a great website that has a ton of, uh, almost a complete archive of uh, Overdrive magazine, which is a trucker magazine. Started in, like, I think, like, 67, maybe, and it went all the way into, like, the 80s or early 90s or something. And um, if you know that band, Bachman Turner Overdrive, right, from Canada, what's the songs? Uh, you Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. Do do taking care of business, taking care of business every day. Bachman Turner Overdrive has a few monster hits you'd hear on a sh even on a shallow playlist. But anyway, apparently, I mean, there's a guy's last name Bachman and Turner. But then Overdrive, I think, was named after the magazine Overdrive magazine. So I started looking at Overdrive, and you know, it it eventually became after the first few years, kind of like. The idea of uh, you know a sort of a beautiful women posing with uh, tr with trucks, so it had a little bit of a an adult side to it. Um, but I started browsing through these and wasn't really finding very much until I got to this one article from the '80s, and I do have a link here. And this image that you see a truck driving at night with sort of a long exposure, you see the lights trailing off and a bridge in the distance. It's this nighttime shot. What an incredible shot! And we'll get we'll get to what that truck is in a moment. And then, of course, I uh, decided to use the typography from that old combat zone art I did. And I just uh, so the cool beans is the exact same colors as combat zone. Actually, starts with co as well. And then the word outcast is in the purple. That was the background, and it just looks so good. And <coughs> the same angle it was at in that logo. <coughs> For the overnightscape logo, I typeset that. Eventually, I chose avant garde avant-garde bold and then uh, that and the Ansog radio logo I put in it in a gray and that's what you see there on the show I love how this turned out cool beans outcast wow but anyway what is this truck because if you look at it on the show art you'll see something interesting it's a truck that where, where'd it go okay here it is um, it's a truck that has an image on the side of it of a of an earlier kind of truck a horse-drawn carriage uh, so it sort of has the history of trucking as an illustration on the side of it. But let's get deeper into what this truck is, because there's a whole article in Overdrive Magazine about this. Let me see if I can find that link. Yeah, here it is. <coughs> Overdrive Magazine. October 1983. And this the website here is uh, FOTKI, F-O-T-K-I, and it's from the Dutch Model Truck Club. I think FOTKI may just be like a, a European... Uh, photo site but the Dutch model truck club has all these magazines so see what we got here as far as the uh, the actual truck here it's sort of like an innovate really innovative truck welcome to Hotel California if you can find it that is computers chrome and kitchen accent traveling honeymoon suite disguised as a moving van so it has this like really beautiful Hotel California logo on the front grill. It's been raining on, off and on all morning, and the rivulets of water by the roadside form miniature lakes by the shoulder. Occasionally, truck tires from passing semis drop down into the lake, sending a splash of mud across the highway, causing tailgating car drivers to curse. It seems that an on-again, off-again rain is more frustrating even than a constant downpour, especially 
when Mother Nature teases truckers by sending slivers of sunshine across the road ahead. Ah, dry road, no more spotted windshield, no more messy mirrors. This sort of, this sort of a problem is history for Bill Yancey and his pretty co-driver Linda. For on board, their 1983 Peterbilt 362 cab over is an, is an example of space-age technology. Avanti mirrors that not only are heated and electrically controlled, but completely equipped with a mirror washer and even an efficient set of wiper blades. Yikes! Electrically operated mirrors that have their own washing system? Yes, but not surprising when you look over Bill and Linda Yancey's Hotel California the traveling honeymoon suite that is really just an outstanding tractor. It's especially outstanding when you consider the fact that it's a resurrected tr truck. For on April 8, 1982, Bill's 1980 Peterbilt, headed from San Jose to Miami, was hit by a jackknifing truck that had been forced into the center of Interstate 5 by a car driver. <laughs> this is some article, right? <laughs> it's for truckers in the 1980s. The result? The most damage was to Bill Yancey, who has trouble doing some of the things most truckers take for granted. But Bill mended faster than the demolished Peterbilt, which spent a total of one year and three weeks in the truck hospital. Of course, when Bill Yancey gets his truck on the road, it's not just a patched-up Pete that struts down the highway. It's a magnificent machine, equipped with everything, including the kitchen sink. In the March 1981 Overdrive, we published an article on the then-new 1981 Peterbilt, which Bill and Linda Yancey, then married three years, proudly put on the highway, that Home Away From Home updated a 1979 Kenworth Aerodyne that Bill had been operating. Now, after what must have seemed like an eternity, an, an eternity to the Yanceys, the Hotel California spends its days and nights on the highways and occasionally byways between California and Florida. Now leased to Beacons, the Yancey Mobile runs on a tight schedule, yet not so tight it can't be cleaned and polished on a regular basis. The new Peterbilt is really a kit. The old sleeper was damaged into wreck, but Double Eagle took care of that nicely, thank you, replacing the back wall and a lot of the roof. The new cab is completely customized by Double Eagle, with, of course, built-in cabinets. But not only... There is not only a lot of closet space, but also a dirty laundry, clothes drop, shelves, and goodies galore. <laughs> the plot thickens here. And there's a great shot of it with the, the, the nice Hotel California logo on the front. Before you think this is not really a practical machine, think again. Inside the giant sleeper sits an Ancron onboard computer, which, as of press time, boasts 21 functions for monitoring the truck's efficiency. For example, the Ancron puts out the miles per gallon on a need-to-know basis, meaning at any particular second or minute, as well as, of course, the speed. It goes further by telling the driver how much fuel is on board and how many hours or miles there is left on the remaining fuel based on the current speed. See, all modern cars have that too. You can just see like how much, uh, how many miles you have left on, on the gas you have remaining, but that that's now. That this was back in '83. That's very. That's very innovative for '83. At the same time, the computer is monitoring all main engine functions, such as oil temperature, water temperature, batteries, and even how much juice is being charged into the batteries. The computer can be can be set to spit out other necessary information, such as how many miles left to destination and how long it's going to take. <laughs> 
It says if the Yanceys are behind or ahead of schedule for any particular drop, or for the whole trip. The wheelbase of Hotel California is 240 inches. On order at press time was a new Kentucky trailer, allowing the combination to stretch to 67 feet 9 inches, meaning that the new trailer will be 48 feet long. Helping to keep the truck in top running shape is Yancey Caterpillar in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, same name, but only run by distant relatives. Still a nice conversation piece, and we're sure that the printing, it will help add rumors that Yancey Caterpillar owns the truck, or Bill and Linda Yancey are hidden owners of Yancey Caterpillar. Not so, just distant relatives, but relatives nonetheless. This is some article, it's going all over the place. There's these other Yanceys in Georgia. Eng's Peterbilt in Pico Rivera, California, and Palm Peterbilt in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, are two main garages for maintenance and repairs. While Hawthorne, another Caterpillar dealer in San Diego, California, provides any other necessary West Coast tune-ups for the smooth-running cat, since the Yanceys maintain a scheduled run. Everything has to be in tip-top shape and is. Ten brand-new Michelin Pilot tires were recently installed. The outstanding bumper is by Chrome King. Mike Lee of Chrome King spent 22 and a half hours hand-cutting the Hotel California out of the bumper, and then turned around and did it, and did an equally handsome job of chroming the whole thing. Even though the unit was out of service for over a year, no insurance company or anybody else gave the Yanceys the financing to keep going. So 1982 and a third of 1983 were extremely tough going. The Yanceys also operated two other pieces of equipment that kept them from going broke. There you have it, a brief story of courage, vision, and imagination. Though it doesn't take too much imagination to realize why the Yanceys are still together after five tough trucking years. Linda has more than half a million miles under her trim belt, while husband Bill has more than 20 years on the road. Linda was in the truck when the accident occurred, but was not hurt the way Bill was. The Hotel California is indeed a traveling hotel, with no tipping allowed. But if we tip our hat toward the Yanceys for their perseverance, you could hardly blame us. Could you? <laughs> wow. So that's a, there's like a whole story behind this truck. That was a long time ago. That was uh, 40 years ago. Yes, 83 was 40 years ago. That's a long time. They don't talk about that illustration on the side, though. Yeah, Beacons, I guess, B-E-K-I-N-S, is the uh, whatever they leased it to. So they're transporting four Beacons. So the illustration is of a Beacons horse-drawn carriage. Yeah, and there's that image I used. Wow. And there's another shot of it. Yeah. They don't have any interior shots, though, which I would have hoped for, considering they're talking so much about the kitchen and stuff. Wait, wait. Nope, we're getting interiors here. There's Bill and Linda in the, uh, the driving uh, seats. And... But no interior... Other interior shots? Uh, maybe there are... Nope, that was it. Oh, come on. <laughs> Kitty. Vegas is here sitting on my lap. Vegas, be on the show. Purring. Happy kitty. I went up into the attic before and 
he gets all freaked out. I can't let him go free up there because like there's so many like nails in the walls and all these like pitfalls and in, in, insulation. So, but I did carry him around a little bit in the attic. I know he really wants to explore every aspect of this house, but kitty, you gotta be safe. You gotta be a safe kitty. Anyway, that's the story of the Hotel California. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a whole story. It's a whole thing. But I just love that image. I have to think, like, uh, I mean, that image was almost like calling out to me. Uh, somehow I found it. And even the colors work perfectly with the colors of that type from the, the combat zone. Um, artwork, so. But that font, Liberty, that's quite a font. Look at that capital E. Holy crap. Kind of reminds me of the uh, fairly rare alternate rounded capital E from uh, Serif Gothic that you can see in some of the I think the He-Man Masters of the Universe uh, toys like <coughs> Skeletor's Castle and stuff uses that alternate E from uh, from uh, yeah Serif Gothic by Herb Blue Ballon <coughs> um, it's funny when it comes to He-Man and the Masters of the Universe Masters of the Universe because I'm just barely a little bit too old to have gotten into that. You know what I mean? Like, I think when it was first coming on, I was just going into college at that point. So there's some, uh, I guess what you could still call Gen X uh, children's entertainment that I was just a little too old for. Transformers is another one that uh, hit right when I was about going to college, and uh, I didn't really embrace it. So... Some younger Gen Xers definitely have that He-Man and uh, Transformers uh, stuff. But it just missed it by like a year or two. It's the way it works, you know? This pop culture moves fast in the 20th century. And it's a day-by-day -day thing. Like even on the exit ramp, we're talking to P PQ, was mentioning uh, like Chuck McCann on local tele uh new york television in the mid 60s and then the um ed sullivan show and because i was born in 67 i kind of missed all that and uh, pq was born a few years earlier and so he got some more tv that i didn't get very specific and we we're talking also about the you know our relationship with tv tv is being such an important thing to us and I think TV is no longer as certainly as important to the young people anymore. Yeah. And I know people think of t TV as junk and horrible, but I don't know. I really cherish my very uh, <laughs> extensive TV viewing in the 70s and 80s growing up. TV was awesome. I mean, if you, if you go back and try to watch this stuff, especially in the 70s, all the stuff we watched as a family, you know, the variety shows, the love boat, Little House on the Prairie, you know, the Mandrell sisters, the Osmonds, you know, all these variety shows. And just all the classic sitcoms, too, that were on, you know, Happy Days, Good Times, etc. Kind of, you know, the fact that you could just be at home and get this entertainment in your house... It was amazing, you know? I know it's hard to imagine living without the computers, the streaming services, or even cable television, but 
We did it. We done all right. We got by. And I think the uh, the lack of choice, in a way, made it uh, even a the overall experience was in some way improved by the lack of choice. Strangely, because you know everyone wound up watching. You, you, the next day, you would talk to people. Oh, did you see that show? There's only three networks. Well, PBS as, as well, I suppose, but that didn't really matter as much. But you know. Chances are, whoever you're talking to probably watched the same show. Did you see uh, Happy Days last night? Yeah. That Fonzie, I'm telling you. Hey. Yeah. TV. All right, it's later on now. I'm on the porch. And I just found out, it's in the afternoon now, that... uh, Massive flooding in New York City. That there's a you know this storm that's been going on today apparently hit uh, New York City especially hard, and the streets are flooded, the subways are flooded. There's major issues. I was just there yesterday; everything was fine, but today it's a a big mess. And uh, I don't know. There's a bit of a lull in the rain right now, though it is raining. Uh, it's going to get even worse uh, tonight and all into tomorrow. So I, I, I don't know what kind of flooding there's going to be here in New Jersey either. Right, because tomorrow we had uh, my mother-in-law's uh, birthday party planned here. And then uh, later on tomorrow I was going to go down to Video Game Connections, the grand opening of that store I was telling you about. That used to be a, a big uh, part of my life and uh, shut down in 2002. Now it's, it's reopening uh, tomorrow. Oh boy, the rain is back with a vengeance. Look at this. It is pouring out there. Um, <clears throat> so I guess everything's going to be a bit up in the air for tomorrow. Last weekend, of course, we had uh, torrential rains, uh, a tropical storm, and uh, the townwide garage sale was canceled, and uh, the the festival in the park in my town here Nutley was canceled and they rescheduled it for this weekend and now that at least the festival in the park has been canceled because even though the weather is supposed to be good on Sunday the aftermath of all the flooding will not make it a good place for a festival so yeah the heck a lot of rain going on a lot of flooding I know this town of Nutley got flooded a couple years ago it was wild it was like a flash flood on the down uh, the main street. We were very lucky. We were here on a hill, and we didn't get uh, flooded. But um, even people on this block, on the hill, their basements got flooded. Thus far, we've been okay, though. You never know. It's very scary. Very scary to think about your basement getting flooded. But a lot of people have that problem. Um, I hope it doesn't happen again, but who knows? Because I know... The ground is probably very uh, saturated from uh, last week's rain event, and now this rain event. So much rain. Anyway, on a different topic, but actually relates to our first topic on today's episode, Artificial Worlds. Whatever happened to the metaverse? It has been now a couple years of endless, uh, seemingly endless hit pieces in the media about the metaverse and how it sucks and no one wants it and 
Mark Zuckerberg is wasting all his company's money on this metaverse that no one cares about. And then there were these, was it last year or the year before, these, uh, all the metaverses that were out there were all connected to the Bitcoin and crypto and the blockchain and all this other stuff. And it was so maddening. Remember there was a, a metaverse, I forget what it was called, I think it was called the Sandbox. And then there was another one. And it was like, oh, you want to play the game? That'll be uh, $6,000 to play the game. I was like, what? It's a game. It should, at most, it costs like $60. Like $6,000? Because you, 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 you had to pay for it in Ethereum, which was some kind of a cyber currency. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, $6,000 to play the game. What? No. What, what are you talking about? Why do, why do metaverses have to be connected to the blockchain and all the other stuff? So now apparently all that has crashed out. That's not happening anymore. And the metaverse, like, I've, you know, I, something that I find, I've been waiting for the real big metaverse to arrive, and it just never has. I mean, it's frustrating for me because I've been into this issue for such a long time. And I always point back to Second Life, which was a, a metaverse that opened in 2004. Heck of a long time, almost almost uh, twenty years ago now. In fact, right? Oh, twenty years ago. This uh, oh, say almost nineteen years ago now. This uh, Second Life uh, was a reasonably good uh, metaverse for its time, right? It was it was proprietary. It was run by a small company, but it was uh, this large virtual area where you could you could just explore for free, or you could pay money to buy land and build businesses and things and it was really quite innovative for the time but as time went on you know the graphics the engine and then the business model and everything just kind of uh it didn't really advance even though it still exists to some degree and then they there was some branch of their software that became uh, open sim right uh, an open version using a variant of the Second Life software, and uh, there was even a website called Metaverse Business or HyperGridBusiness.com. I wonder. If, let me check, see if that's still there. Using the term HyperGrid, I think the HyperGrid was more in the sense that now with that open source software, you could theoretically run it on your own server. You wouldn't have to be beholden to anyone. You could just run this open source software on your own server and have your own little grid, as they called it. And the hypergrid was each that the grids can connect to each other very much in the same way as, as Internet web pages, HTML, could connect to each other. And that was the dream, that it would be open source. And you could also pay a hosting company to, to run your, uh, your grid using this uh, software, OpenSIM software. And it, unfortunately, was based on... Uh, the outdated Second Life, you know, system, which was really not great and could be so much better, especially now, right? And as a bit of an armchair futurist, I, I was just thinking about, you know, can you imagine with 20 years of advancement, a new Second Life type of metaverse would be so great. And um, for some reason, it's all been kind of the all of the... Uh, hopes and dreams for the metaverse have been dashed. There is no metaverse. And we seem to be further from it than ever, which is so strange. 
right, let's see. Hypergrid business. Is this still going? It is still going, theoretically. NFT crash wipes out nearly all collections, and the metaverse won't save them. Okay, well, this must be from a little while ago, this story. Oh, no, this is just uh, last week, September 23rd. The NFT craze crashed and burned. Gee, who could have seen that coming? NFT, non-fungible tokens, another aspect of this cryptocurrency thing, which I never got into. Um, uh, open sim land area at a new all-time high again. OS Fest 23. Wow, they, we, they, there's an OS Fest. At open Simulator Festival, wow. So I guess it's that Open Simulator still going to some extent. 10th annual Open Simulator Community Conference set for December. But this is still kind of a fringe thing. You know, you know, I'm not talking about how if you really try hard, you can kind of like get something going. I'm talking about something where anyone can just jump into it. And my vision of the metaverse is that it would be a... Uh, the look of it, the feel of it, the graphics would have to be extraordinary. And that a great way of doing that would be to use the um, the back-end service system that, for example, the game streaming services such as the now long-defunct uh, Google Stadia, you could play video games or computer games um, by having it. the game is running on a server somewhere in the world and they're just streaming the video output to you as as a streaming video. And then the input is coming back via a controller or the keyboard and it did turn out that it was uh, the whole process was fast enough that you didn't really notice any any lag time or latency between pressing the button and the th and your character doing something so it seemed to work so i sort of felt that um a metaverse based on that sort of back end technology where it could render uh, a uh, a beautiful world not crap like the, those nft or those crypto sites like the sandbox very crappy looking there was one that ran in the browser too and again it didn't look good it just it was kind of crappy looking it was like below the level of second life um the idea is that using this back-end technology you could then you could then become completely device independent right that it would be a three-dimensional richly rendered world that you could access from any device. You wouldn't need to have these 3D goggles on, which I understand is uh, is something that has a. Uh, you know, there's there's problems with those 3D goggles. You know, it has something to do with, and I don't know if they're. I'm sure they will solve the issues, but the, it's it does not deal with fo focal lengths correctly. That is, in the real world, you're constantly focusing your eyes at different focal lengths in the 3D environment around you, whereas thus far that has not really been the case for the uh, the 3D glasses, that the VR goggles, you know, the Oculus or whatever they, they are now called. Anyway, I sort of felt that you shouldn't have to couple the metaverse with 3D goggles, so you could use 3D goggles. The idea is that if it's being rendered on a back end, and listen, I understand the scale, the cost, uh, etc. Um, it does seem to be a an infrastructural thing that if it's all being rendered on the back end, that's an awful lot of server power. Every single person in the metaverse or this particular metaverse would there need to be a dedicated server somewhere in the world rendering their experience. But 
it does seem possible and that um, as server architectures uh, increase, right, the metaverse will just get better and better without having to upgrade some sort of device, right? You know, you, you, you could use any device that can stream video. And I think that use, having a, doing it on your phone, a tablet, a computer, a TV set, using goggles, a video wall, a video room, or what have you, if you had that beautifully rendered world um, that was persistent and you could have avatars in, I think it would, it would be revolutionary. And, it, and the, the idea is that it could replace the flat internet, the flat page-based uh, internet with, you know, uh, a three-dimensional world, which is something that we're all very familiar with living in the three-dimensional world, right? Amazon would become a giant virtual shopping mall instead of a series of flat pages, right? Every website would become three-dimensional and a place. And it just has seemed so achingly obvious that whoever masters this and comes up with the, the good one first will sort of be the masters of the new internet in a way and uh, all I can surmise uh, is that uh, this uh, idea of this metaverse that I'm talking about is something that seems to be I don't know deliberately being held back at, at high levels or it could be I mean that that's one way of looking at it in a conspiratorial sense or it could just be that the technology is not quite there yet, but the technology was there 19 years ago to create a pretty good metaverse for the time in Second Life. So are you saying 20 years of technological computer advancements, we can't do anything better than that after 20 years? I, I think we can. I think it is possible. So I think the reason it's not, there must be some other reason why it's not there. I mean, it could be that, listen, everyone's doing, you know, making money and in the old, the old style internet and the new style internet would only introduce all these, would certainly send a lot of businesses out of business and a lot of new businesses would rise. What happened with uh, Oculus was really interesting because there was this, uh, whatever it was about 10 years ago or so, I, I suppose that uh, this, this, this young guy in his early 20s, Palmer Lucky, was probably having similar thoughts that I was having, like whatever happened to this v virtual reality? Right, no no company seems to be pursuing VR. Yet, the one area that there was massive advancements in was um, cell phones, uh, smartphones. Right, uh, and all of the things in the, the displays of a smartphone getting better and better. The gyroscopes detecting positions. Right, uh, the communications, every all the different Bluetooth and. Wi-Fi and everything else, near-field technology, right? The advancements were incredible. So this guy, Palmer Lucky, and I'm just, this is just my impression of what happened. He's like, you know, I could make a VR system off the shelf. I could just buy uh, components of, you know, that were made for cell phones. I could buy a screen. You could buy the chips that do the gyroscopes to detect positions and it's like, no company's doing this. Let me do this. It was this young guy, like in a garage, put together the Oculus, right? Because no one else was doing it. And it became very successful. And then it was bought by uh, my, uh, Facebook for like a billion dollars. And 
I did go. I did get involved with it in 2014. I actually went out to Silicon Valley and actually had a booth at the the first uh, consumer VR conference out there. I was there, but uh, I kind of dropped out after that, as I don't have a good head for business per se. Uh, I'm more on the creative side, and uh, I don't have like the money to invest in trying to create some sort of business. So, but anyway, that's that. That's all. Just a side thing. That's my own involvement in it. But anyway, so I was involved, and I did really think that we were getting there. And my whole concept of my night station VR was really predicated upon uh, the assumption that there would be a robust metaverse emerging. That was 2014. I'm thinking 2015, 2016, 2017. There will be a big metaverse by one of these big companies. Yet still, this is now how many years later? Nine years later? (laughs) Still hasn't happened. And... The uh, and Facebook decided uh, they renamed their company Meta, and their big thing was going to be the metaverse. They've been investing billions of dollars in it, and yet all the headlines are showing how they've just failed at it. Complete failure, waste of money. And I don't know what little I've seen of their attempts is not a metaverse. It's like uh, what do they have a thing called Horizon Worlds, which looks barely more advanced than like VR chat, which itself is okay. It's just. Those kind of crappy graphics, those cartoonish avatars, and um, it's just not, you know, exactly, it's not a modern form of Second Life. It's just like a series of rooms, basically. So, I don't understand exactly if there was not a concerted effort to stop it, and considering all the benefits to the company that actually produces this thing, this actual next level second life as the metaverse preferably in some sort of open source and interoperable way but even if it's a walled garden, even if it's just Apple doing it or Facebook or Google, you know it seems to have such huge potential and yet days and weeks, months and years go by and now decades go by and nothing (laughs) And you wonder why some hobbyist isn't doing it now. And how did Second Life do it 20 years ago? It's all a big mystery, really. Um, Is there a concerted effort to stop it? Or is it just that it's not a good economic investment? That is, how do you make money with it? Well, I mean, I could imagine enormous ways to make money with it. It seems... uh, just pregnant with with uh, potential for making money for those that are in, in, into into such a cupidity. But so everyone everyone wants to make a few bucks. What do you want anyway? So I don't know whatever happened to the metaverse. Uh, it could be a big game changer for the entire world and the way our society works. And maybe those that are in control or think they're in control of this world have it something under control, have a handle on how to control things now, maybe they feel that uh, the the metaverse would simply introduce too many wild cards into the situation. And why go there if they're already sort of set up? You know. I don't know. I I do think it's a mystery. And as you know, earlier this year, I was even talking about my metaverse plans for this project, Onsug Radio, and uh, (laughs) they're seeming less and less necessary as time goes on. But I did describe, and I think I described it on one of the anniversary shows back in March, a few months ago now. Probably almost six months ago now. Um, the uh, the idea of uh, 
Onsug Radio just having sort of a a location-based thing, almost like the, the size of a store in a mall where there would be a, a radio studio and there would be a an area kind of like a, an old video rental store, but instead of videos, there would just be all the audio from the archive that you could uh, grab the box and go into a listening booth and listen to the various shows and stuff. I, I detailed it pretty in a pretty detailed way back then. Will I ever need to worry about that? I don't know. It is strange, this lack of the metaverse, but it's just the way things are going now. Look at this rain. This is, I'm getting worried about tomorrow now. Could everything be canceled due, due to flooding? I hope not. Anyways, with that, I'd like to say thank you so much for patching into this episode of the Overnightscape. I'm your host, Frank Edward Nora, here in uh, Nutley, New Jersey, here on uh, Friday, September 29th, 2023. I was thinking of keeping this show going for tomorrow to go to Video Game Connections, but I'll just do it on the next episode because now I'm doubting that I, I maybe I won't be going down there. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but, yeah, anyway, we're here in Onsug Radio. It's uh, broadcasting from inside a book. It's, uh, it's a book called Onsug Radio. And uh, I've been making great progress on the next uh, print edition, but you can go to onsug.com. That's O-N-S-U-G.com. Now, Onsug is a word that just represents the Overnightscape Underground, O-N-S-U-G. O-N-S, Overnight Scape Underground, O-N-S-U-G. Get it? Onsug Radio is the name of the project. And uh, you can buy a copy of the book. You can download a free PDF of the book, the 2021 edition, or the monthly updated version, which is uh, the monthly updated version is, a, is has all the content in there. It's like 3,500 pages long. It's all of the descriptions from all of the shows, over what, over 11,000 individual episodes, over 14,000 hours of material here in the archive. Um, the next print book I'm really making progress on, hoping to get it out within a month or two. It will also be print on demand. Um, but, you know, I have it existing now, but I just it just needs a lot of work to be sort of uh, ready for prime time. Um, anyway, check it out at onsug.com. You can also check out all the latest episodes. And this is a non-commercial project. It's all free forever. We also are very dedicated to preservation, that all the shows that we have ever had on the channel here are preserved, and they'll continue to be preserved. And we want people to be listening in both the near and far future. We want to preserve this, almost like a message in a bottle in some ways, um, for future generations to listen to. I know it sounds a bit arrogant to say people will want to hear what we have to say, but I do suspect, considering that we're living through this incredibly interesting time of history and the ability to record and preserve huge amounts of uh, ephemeral audio that is, you know, spoken word audio, that it's not music, it's, you know, just thousands of hours of spoken word audio, um, you really couldn't do that before about 20 years ago. You couldn't even do it 20 years ago. Right, and all of this fourteen thousand hours fits currently in uh, under a terabyte, and I just looked. Terabyte storage is coming down slightly in price. Legitimate uh, terabyte flash drives are now a little over a hundred dollars. There's uh, SSDs that are uh, you know in the seventy or eighty dollar range. I'm just waiting for a terabyte to cost like five bucks. You know, like. If it was following the same pattern as megabytes and gigabytes, it would have already. But the terabytes, for some reason, is having a problem. 
but it'll get down eventually. So just in terms of uh, an archive like ours, you know, it can be stored on a hard drive or a flash drive or an SSD, a solid-state drive. But it has to continually be recopied onto newer media in order for it to be preserved. Not any individual instance of a type of media, a hard drive, what have you, will last. But the data being ones and zeros, just as long as it continues to be migrated from drive to drive, from system to system, storage method to storage method, it should be able, it will be able to survive into the future. So, anyways, your voice can be in this archive. Check out Overnightscape Central. Just go to onsug.com. It's a show that comes out each week, a new topic each week, and you can record and send your audio into PQ River in New Mexico. It's very. It should be a very easy process. I know the. It's not the actual. It's just the actual people thinking. What am I going to say? How am I going to do it? Please just try it out. You'll be much better than you think you are. You're going to record. You have a phone already. You can record on your phone and send an MP3 file to PQ. Just listen to the latest episode of Overnightscape Central for all the instructions you need. And uh, coming up, the next episode is going to be Zoo Z O O. So we're going to talk about the uh, zoos. It's a very rich topic. I, I, I'll have to tackle that this weekend. So please do. I think uh, I think you'll enjoy participating in Overnightscape Central. Anyways, now we are going to uh, head on over to a maelstrom in its own right of audio excellence. Semi-random audio delights here in The Other Side.
dear Benson and Hedges 100s, a friend of mine recently smoked one of your long cigarettes. He didn't get any of those extra puffs you promised. Dear Benson and Hedges 100s, so far I have not been able to enjoy all your extra puffs. But I'm not complaining. Dear Benson and Hedges 100s, I prefer your cigarette more than any other brand. Mayhaps someday I will purchase a pack. Keep those letters coming in, folks. We love hearing from you. At least we think we do. You can be an instant winner of a super surprise. Five Mazda GLC wagons, hundreds of Mattel toys for kids in your neighborhood, instant winner packets and specially marked Cracker Jack packs, a right for free packet at this address. Contest ends February 1981. Want to know what Tiny Tim is doing in the plastic world of Las Vegas? Read I Magazine. Want to know what Candy Bergen thinks about sex, leading men, drugs, politics, and parents? Read I Magazine. Want to know why the Bee Gees don't turn everybody on or blow everybody's mind? Read I Magazine. Want to know what a young man can learn from an older woman? Read I Magazine. Want to know if you're a creative genius? Read I Magazine. I Magazine. Everything you want to know and talk about is in December's issue of I Magazine. That's E-Y-E. -E, I Magazine. On sale now.
President of the United States, I was at the first Pan-American Congress in Washington, D.C. That with God help, our two countries shall continue to live side by side in peace and prosperity. Benjamin Harrison. This is one of 50,000 voices from the collection of the Vincent Voice Library at Michigan State University. It is widely recognized that an advanced technology is one of the most distinctive aspects of American society. The historic American Engineering Record, a program of the National Park Service, documents historic, engineering, and industrial works throughout the country. Measured drawings, photographs, and historical reports are preserved in the Library of Congress for sites and structures which illustrate America's technological development. Documentary films of surviving industrial processes provide still another means of increasing our understanding, since they preserve the critical relationship between machines and those who use them. This film is part of the engineering records program for the formation of a visual archive of American technological history. Seneca Glass Company was founded in 1891. Actually, uh, a group of uh, German immigrants living in the Cumberland, Maryland area uh, formed a company. So they had to have a glass factory, a glass house, and there was a baker in Seneca County, Ohio. So with the West Virginia Charter in 1891, uh, the Seneca Glass Company started in Seneca County, Ohio. Uh, in 1896, the natural gas was discovered in the Morgantown area, and so the Seneca Glass Company moved to its present location in Morgantown in 1896. We were at one time, of course, quite a bit larger than we are today. Uh, we had 20-some shops working, whereas today we have uh, 11. We had 60-some uh, cutters, whereas today we have about 12. Of course, back in the turn of the century, in 1910 and 15, there were no machines to make glassware. Any glass you drank out of was handmade somewhere. Basic raw materials in our batch are silica sand, soda ash, potash, red lead, miter, and a host of small uh, chemicals uh, for coloring and for what have you. We prepare approximately 2,000 pounds of batch for each pot. In mixing the batch, we, of course, uh, weigh out into a batch card sheet. 200 pounds of this or 50 pounds of that. And we have, when we have all the raw materials weighed out into the batch card, we then use an overhead vacuum where we suck up all the batch into this holding tank. When this is done, we reverse the process, putting the hose into our mixer, and then release all the raw materials as our mixer is moving so that all the raw materials are thoroughly mixed and broken up. 
and go into the mixer. Of course, at this point, then the mixer is sealed, and there's so many turns on so many on different batches, and it's thoroughly mixed and then uh, upended into that same batch cart to be wheeled out and put into the furnace. Oh, we have a different, uh, different formula for every batch we make. Even the collards is different. Like, uh, you might think you could take a crystal batch and put any collar into it, but it's, any substance that goes into this batch has to do with the collar. You know, what it turns out in the nature of the glass, how it works, how it gathers, how it behaves even when you temper it, going through the layer. We had a, like a yellow that we had to keep changing the batch because the temper wasn't right on it. When you go to temper, it would explode. It'd crack. Anything you put in it, it's, it's all important. The cone is added to the batch uh, actually for two reasons. One reason being that we can remelt the glass and again use it. But secondly, it acts as a catalyst in the melting process. After we work a, a pot out, at the end of the day, the furnace men manage they're going to fill the pot in for two days uh, later working. We'll leave a four to five inch heel of glass. So if there's seven or eight inches of glass left, they'll ladle out down to the four inch level. The uh, glass that's ladled out of the pot is either dumped or sold to a marble manufacturer. We have a marble manufacturer in West Virginia which buys X amount of tons a month from us of any color to make marbles. It doesn't matter the quality of the glass. batch along with the color and of course shovel it into a pot. It's called charging a pot. Uh, it's shoveled in and the pot is sealed up with a stopper and allowed to cook about approximately 30 hours. Some colors so to speak come around faster than others, maybe 28 hours or maybe 32 hours. He puts a rod in there, he sticks a rod right down into the glass and pulls it out and you hold it up like that and you'll see little bubbles in there, see? Well, if there's bubbles in there, that's not quite cooked enough. So you put that back in, let it cook some more, and then later on you take another fruit, and you can see if your glass is cleared up, see? We use applewood on the end of a steel rod and do what we call boiling the glass, and actually churn it up, so to speak, to get the glass is cooking on the bottom up to the top and vice versa. The gatherer certainly has a uh, very important job because once he gathers a piece of glass, that is it. And if he gathers the, the wrong amount, whether it be too much or too little, then the whole item will end up wrong, even though it is the, the right shape. The first piece or two will be broken on the shop to check the weight, to look and see how thick the walls are. I would say blowing. I would say that's the hardest to learn. 
And uh, you might learn to do it real quick. And maybe the other fellow will never learn it. Just bring it up slow. And as it fills up, it'll just hurt harder all the time. You can tell right away when, when it's clear. If you blow too hard, it'll just be streaks all over. It's what they call mole marks. When I was learning my trade, I worked in the blowing room, and when I quit, I could uh, blow, I could gather, and I could still go out there and probably gather glass. I couldn't blow and I couldn't pull stems because I don't have the knack of doing it. We've had boys that come in here and look at this and say, oh, I can never do that. It's because they don't want to try to do it. So when I started to work here, I was making uh, $2.60 a day, and for nine hours. <laughs> at that time, you'd be surprised you had to take your turn. You was only allowed to go ahead and practice maybe a half hour a week, and we couldn't wait till the weekend till that time come, which was on Saturday morning. They'd let us go ahead and practice for a half hour. You go out there and you see those kids carrying in and that. They don't even want to go in there and learn to blow glass. Normally on a stem shop, they're working four out, which is there's four pieces of glass on that shop at one time, in some phase. The governor has one, the blower is putting the stem on one. They are putting the foot on one, and they're carrying one away. One person on that shop can throw it out of line. If everybody does their job, you just work even. And you don't work hard. Now, our iron mold, you don't have to cool. We don't put that in water. You don't turn that. You just put it in there and blow. We have uh, two different types of shops. We have a stem shop and a tumbler shop. Actually, a tumbler shop consists of four people, which would be the gatherer, which would gather the glass out of the furnace, the blower, which would blow the glass into the mold to shape it, the cracking off person, which would crack the glass off of the pipe after it's manufactured, and the carrying in person, which would carry it from the shop into the tempering layer. So four people. On a stem shop, since we had a stem and foot, we would have six people. Some jobs are more difficult to blow than others. Now, we've got blowers out here that I can't give every job to. I've got to give him something that he can make. Some more difficult jobs, i got special guys you give that to. They can't all do the same thing.
the blower would be the boss of the shop, but the gather's tempo would determine how many pieces were going to be made in a four-hour period. I made it in the neighborhood of 3,000 moles since I've been here. Most of those, uh, well, maybe in the neighborhood of 50% uh, of them, we had to make patterns for them. So you start out from scratch, you get your wood, you go ahead and turn out your wooden pattern, you put your hinges on it, get it ready to take to the foundry, and when it comes back, it's, it comes back in metal, and then we've got to finish it. The mold, uh, it just lasts forever. If it was left to just cool to room temperature by itself, it would cool in five minutes or so and undoubtedly blow up or break because of the manufacturing strains in this glass, because of the handling of it and the tools against it, what have you. So it goes into an annealing layer, which actually is a conveyor belt inside of an oven, temperature starting at 900 degrees and gradually cooling as it goes back. Our layer runs three hours, it moves about three and a half inches a minute and so we're coming down we have a controlled cooling coming down from 900 degrees to room temperature so that we've taken the strain out of the glass in a glass house every person's secondary job is inspector uh, if there's something wrong with the item throw it away because the faster we throw it away the less money we put into a bad piece that will be thrown away eventually Every item we manufacture has a top on it. This is the part that's against the pipe. So we then must, as we call it, crack off the top to the right height. We do this by putting a score, a little scratch, on the item at the desired height. And it spins around on a pedestal with a little jets of flame hitting the item. And as the item spins around, it's heated at the one point where the scratch is. And when it spins long enough, depending on the thickness of the glass, the top actually pops off where it breaks. It cracks all the way around, breaks right where the fire has hit it. So then we just drop the top off and go with the next one. We've had people watch the operation in the hot metal department for 10 minutes and say, well, do you manufacture anything beside bases? melting over the top, controlled melting, to put the round edge on the glass. Well, this puts the round edge on the glass, but it also reheats the top and takes the temperament out of the top of the glass. So it, coming off the glazer, must be put into a re-annealing layer for another three hour, three and a half hour process. And if we didn't, the top would be very brittle, and possibly in the washing, it would just ring right off. Well, 
I have been marking. I started about uh, around 32 years ago working here. It takes a lot of time, a lot of patience, and you have to have really some talent to do this kind of work. You have to get accuracy and speed too, to, you know, to keep up and keep your patterns marked up and keep the cutters all in work. We have a sample of every cut pattern, whether it be the goblet or the sherbet or the wine or the cordial or the tea. So we bring the sample out and adjust some rods which actually block out the pattern, not design it out, but block out, space it out. And we set up the, the spacing rods with the sample that's already cut. Take it away and then we mark each piece just for spacing. So the cutter knows a certain portion of the pattern goes below the line, a certain portion goes above the line, or a certain portion goes in between the lines. The uh, marking is done uh, with a red lead paint so that it won't come off with water because there's always water on the wheel and on the glass and we'll end up with this elaborate cut halfway through with the guidelines marked off. When I first came here and started to work, uh, we had uh, quite a few more patterns and blanks, but now we don't have quite as quite as many to remember. Now these stones, they come from up in the northern part of Ohio. They bring them in and we have to lead the stone, line it up, and then we uh, shape the stone to fit the, the glass. From the time we bring a new stone in and lead it up and uh, shape it, it takes around five, six hours. Sometimes uh, we have to change the stone often for different types of glass. Uh, it uses the stone up faster. After you have the stone shaped and everything, it isn't too much of a job to cut the glass. It, it takes a long time to learn that. Uh, I've been at it quite a few years. I've, I've been here 28 years. I've had several to try to learn it. It worked maybe four or five years, and then they'd give it up. they just find something better. When I started in the glass factory, you just about had to take any job you found, regardless of what it was. Something that uh, I wouldn't advise a young fellow nowadays to get into. Of course, I got a boy coming up. I, I wouldn't want to see him come in and learn my trade. Uh, there are things better for him to learn than cutting glass. You uh, take a look at a uh, pattern. And you just about know exactly what stone to pick up to put on to make that, that tight cut. Of course, if you don't know that, well, you're not no glass cutter. It's just like an artist. He knows what paints to use to make a different color. We use a cork wheel to 
polish the blemishes that are occurred during manufacture. Stems, we generally polish them on a natural core. Not Presume, I don't know, but I presume we're probably the only ones left today that make up our own corks. And on that, we use a combination of rotten stone and pumice stone as a mud base to polish it. The cork polishing is, is very effective and it's very brilliant. Uh, and wherever you can use it, that's what we do. Some of the patterns we have, we have to acid polish them because you cannot get down to those real small cuts. Any man tells you he, he can cut anything, or you're looking at a lot of them. Because there isn't a man alive that can cut anything. In two years, you can learn how to cut miter, but you spend the rest of your life and still never be a floor It's more demanding. It takes an entirely deep concentration at all times. You can't be under any pressure. As you notice, there's nobody walking around. There's nobody leaning over your shoulder. They'll leave you alone. You know your job, and you, you go ahead and do it. The shame is not any more of us than what they are, but most of them are died off. There is a personal satisfaction that you get that you achieve something, but uh, after a day's work, you're tired like anybody else, and you're ready to go home. The red lead paint will not come off with water. That's why we use red lead paint, so that in the cutting process, we're not erasing our, our guidelines. So it's a banana oil and water solution that uh, is used at the end where it's washed and uh, white. It smells like a fruit market in summer. There's really no perfect piece of glass, just like there's no perfect diamond. But I think Seneca has the most perfect piece of glass as you will find any place. I don't know. 
it is the only path and passage into the vortex. You will show me how you come to be here. My name is Zed, or Zandas. I am an exterminator. Zardos. Ah. 